week five in our series on God Questions, and we've looked at things like, why do we believe in the Bible? Why do we believe uh, in God? Is Jesus the only way? And this question is one of the most important because a lot of people look at Christianity and say, well, it's so exclusive, it's so narrow, and it's so arrogant to claim that there is only one way to God. And yet we as believers in Jesus, we know what Jesus said in John 14, verse 6, where he said, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. And in this world of tolerance and pluralism, this claim bothers people like no other. How could Jesus be the only way? Aren't there other ways to God? What about people who are sincere but they believe something else? What about people who have never heard the gospel before? And so when you hear these claims, it feels arrogant, it feels exclusive, and yet that's what Jesus claimed about himself. And so we're going to take a look at his claim today, and we're going to look at three myths, three things that people say out there, and we're going to try to debunk those myths today a little bit. And the first one is, all religions are basically the same. We call this universalism. Universalism basically says, let's take a little bit from every religion. We'll find a piece here and a piece there and a piece there. Put them all together and we'll discover who God is. And uh, that, that basically is the idea. And that if we just strip them all down to their essentials, you're going to find some core things that are the same. Well, if you do strip them down to their bare essentials, you are going to find some similarities. Uh, and one of the biggest one is that almost every religion around the world believes that we should have some moral values. And, uh, and so if you're ever having a conversation with somebody from a different, different faith, it's good to build a bridge. Well, how are you going to build a bridge? That's one way. We find some commonality in the fact that uh, people of other world religions as well, they find value in doing good things. And so it's good to build a bridge with that. But there is so many stark differences in religions. Ravi Zacharias writes in his book, Jesus Among Other Gods, all religions are not the same. All religions do not point to God. All religions do not say that all religions are the same. At the heart of every religion is an uncompromising commitment to a particular way of defining who God is and is not, and accordingly of life's defining purposes. Anyone who claims that all religions are the same betrays not only an ignorance of all religions, but also an unrealistic view of even the best-known ones. Every religion at its core is exclusive. Every religion claims to have an exclusive idea of the truth. Now, the uniqueness of Christianity is really found in Jesus himself. Someone once noted that other religious leaders say, follow me and I'll show you the truth. I'll show you how to find the truth. But Jesus said, I am the truth. Other religious leaders say, follow me and I'll show you the way to salvation. But Jesus said, I am the way to eternal life. Other religious leaders say, follow me and I'll show you how to become enlightened. But Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Other religious leaders say, follow me and I'll show you the many doors that lead to God. But Jesus said, I am the door that leads to God. And so it's far different. The claims that Jesus made were far different than other world religions. And for a long time, people have tried to harmonize those various religions. In one of my classes at Indiana Westland, we, I draw up on the board a mountain. And I just say, this is what universalism is. It basically says God is at the top of the mountain, and all you need to do is find your different path. You could go various different ways up the mountain, but at the top of the mountain is God. You'll find them if you just take whatever path you want to take. That's what universalism says. The problem with that is that it's not based in truth that those different paths up the mountain are diametrically opposed to one another. Every other religion that I've ever seen 
is based on how people do something, on how they try to work their way up the mountain. But the reality is that no matter how hard you struggle, no matter how hard you strive, you will never make it up to the top of the mountain on your own. You will never work hard enough. You will never be good enough. But every world religion is based on that idea. How do I work my way up the mountain? But in Christianity, we see God at the top of the mountain, himself descending down to the bottom of the mountain to become our tour guide on the way up, to say this is how you get to the top of the mountain. As Gary Poole writes, in, a world, in world religions, blind men are groping for God, yet finding only pieces of him. But here's the key. If God could talk and reveal what he is like to the blind men, they would have a total picture Christianity is not blind men reaching for God, as in the case with other man-made religions. It is God coming to blind men to clearly explain himself in Christ. We believe the gospel which says all of us sin and fall short of God's glory, and that God has provided a way for us, a way for salvation. His grace is sufficient. If you want one comparison between two world religions and what they believe about God's forgiveness, there's an old story, an old Buddhist story. They have a prodigal son type story and compare it to the Christian prodigal son story. In the Buddhist story and in the Christian story, both have a child that goes wayward, that leaves the family home, that eventually comes to a place of repentance and comes back to try to get back in the good graces of the father. But in the Buddhist story, the errant son is required to work off the penalty for his past misdeeds by spending years in servitude. But you all know the Christian version. It's a parable of the prodigal son which ends with the repentant son being warmly welcomed home by his loving father who runs for him and being given an undeserved grace and forgiveness where the father makes his way to the child. There are a lot of fundamental differences between Christianity and other world religions. For instance, Christianity says that there is one eternal God who created the heavens and the earth. Hinduism says everything is a God. Here a God, there a God, everywhere a God, God, everywhere. And how do you reconcile that? Buddha may not even have believed in God. Friends, these beliefs cannot all be true at the same time. They contradict one another thoroughly. So all religions are not the same. And while all religious leaders can offer some wise sayings and helpful insights, only Jesus Christ, because he is the perfect son of God, is qualified to offer himself as a payment for our wrongdoing, to descend from from heaven to earth, to show us the way up the mountain. And it makes sense. It's illogical to think that God would go over to one side of the world and tell people here's one way, and come over here and say here's another way, and go somewhere else and say here's another way. It makes sense that God would say here is the way, the truth, and the life. Acts chapter 4 verse 12, it says, Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which they must be saved. 1 Timothy 2.5 says, For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man, Jesus Christ. So to say all religions are the same, or this idea of universalism, it's just not based in reality. And while it feels good, it's not uh, true. The second myth is there is no such thing as absolute truth. In other words, this is called relativism. That you just believe whatever you want to believe, I'll believe whatever I want to believe, and in the end, God will make it all right, and certainly he won't condemn people to hell anyway, so it really doesn't matter what you believe. I like what Paul Copen uh, says in his book. He says, truth is true no matter if no one knows it. Truth is true even if no one admits it. Truth is true even if no one agrees with it. Truth is true even if no one follows it. Truth is true even if no one 
but God grasp it fully. Friends, truth is important. Uh, truth is important in mathematics. It can save you from a bounced check or from bankruptcy. Uh, truth was important to my 10th grade Algebra 2 teacher, Mrs. Cleary, who saw fit to fail me because apparently I didn't understand the truth. Amen. You know what I'm saying? And uh, so I took it again with Mrs. Ross when I was a senior, got an A. Mrs. Ross was just better at presenting the truth than Mrs. Cleary was. I'm sure it was her fault, not mine. Amen. Truth saves us in aviation. I don't know about you, but when I fly, I like to look in the cockpit and see somebody who looks kind of like a fundamentalist, somebody who actually believes that the plane should do what it should do. If somebody in there looks like Kramer from Seinfeld, I'm choosing a different flight. I want somebody who knows that aviation, there's truth in aviation. My point is, if there's truth and it's important in mathematics or in medicine or in aviation, Isn't truth critical when it comes to the single most important issue of our life, which is our spiritual relationship? But that's the one where people say, it doesn't matter what you believe. There is no truth. Believe whatever you want. It's good for you. Whatever I believe is good for me, and it doesn't really matter. But the Bible gives us a totally different concept. Jesus said, I am the truth. I am the truth. Now, in philosophy, there is a concept called the law of non-contradiction. Don't get confused by this. When I was first asked to teach a philosophy class at Indiana Wesleyan, I had this huge textbook that they gave me. It's a five-week class. So I went to the local bookstore, the Half Price Books over here, and I bought a book called uh, Making the the Incredible Complexities of Philosophy Simple. I was like, that's me. I got that one. So I got that book. And I use the philosophies of, of, obviously, the main philosophers of the world, but it's called philosophy and Christian thought. So I was able to take what Christianity teaches on these ideas. One of the concepts we teach in this class is called the law of non-contradiction. The law of contradiction, non-contradiction basically says if you have two ideas that are opposing, both of those ideas cannot be true. Okay? If I say to you that, um, that the sky is green and you say the sky is white, um, those, both of those ideas cannot be true. Now, they both might be false. One might be true and one might be false, but they both can't be true. This is the case with any contradictory things, any contradictory ideas. Both cannot be true. And so if you look at the world religions, and one religion says God is an eternal God who came as Jesus Christ to our world and saved us, And another religious view says Jesus came, but he is not a son of God. And in fact, he never even died. Here's what you can say about those two things. You could say both are false. You could say one is true and one is false. But you can't say both are true. Does that make sense to everybody? Everybody understand that? Give a big nod. All right. Okay, good, good. I haven't lost you yet. And so this law of non-contradiction is important. It's just basic logic. Buddhism says there's no creator. It's actually more of an atheistic religion than a theistic religion. And yet without a creator, all moral law is preference, opinion, and societal edict. So how can we possibly arrive at at a comparison to that in Christianity? In Hinduism, reincarnation is the population caught in a moral cycle of being rewarded in this life for every act we committed in a previous life, and the cycle continues. How do you compare that to the Christian view where when we die, we go to heaven or hell? How about Islam? 
You do the five pillars of Islam, follow Allah's directives and his prophet Muhammad's words in the Quran, and then you will hope for the best because you don't know where your life will lead. You aren't sure. It's a, it's a faith based on how will I work? How will I live my life? How do you compare that to the Christian concept of grace and that it's undeserved merit that Jesus Christ offers a gift to you? How do you compare it? The law of non-contradiction says both things cannot be true. And so we're left with how do we find the truth? And we looked last week at why do we believe in Jesus Christ? And so I'm not going to go over it again, but we believe in him through the prophecies and through the resurrection of him for, through the dead. Unlike other religious leaders, Jesus performed great undeniable miracles, further authenticated, authenticated his claim by being God in the fact that he said he would die, and three days later he would rise from the dead. And over 500 people gave witness and testimony to the fact that they had seen him. And this movement called Christianity rose. I'm just saying that both things, all world religions and Christianity, both cannot be true. And so, you have to research, find the evidence, give it its due, and learn. So that's relativism. Is there such a thing as truth? Jesus is the way, Jesus is the truth, and Jesus is the life. This concept, this myth says the ultimate goal of life is just to be happy. And we call this humanism, humanism. Jesus said, I am the life. People say, I want to find life in myself. They say, I, I, I want the world to center around my needs, my views, my thoughts. And this happens very early as children, doesn't it? Anybody ever in here ever had a two-year-old? Right? I mean, you know how selfish they are. I mean, they want it their way, right? So as a parent, next time you see your two-year-old, just say, look, you little humanist. Um, you need to get your act together. No, don't say that. But when you look at it, you think, well, man, what is going on? Because the world centers around us. That's humanism. And it leads to this belief, which basically says, look, it doesn't matter what you believe as long as you're sincere. If you're just sincere, it's all about you anyway. So just be sincere in what you believe and all will be well. Friends, sincerity is not truth. People can be sincere about something and be sincerely wrong. For example, if you needed heart surgery or you would die, would you want the surgeon to have passed the boards, or do you want the surgeon that flunked his boards but was sincere in his wrong answers? I think we all know what the answer is. I mean, in other words, if you sincerely believe in something, it doesn't make it true. Hitler was sincere in his atheism and persecution of the Jews, but it didn't make it true. I'll go even further. Cliff Connecty states, in medicine, truth is vital. It would be cruel, or should we say even evil, if a doctor looked at a patient in the face and said, you have a malignant tumor that is spreading throughout your body. It really doesn't matter, though. You can either go home and allow the tumor to continue to consume your body, or else you can allow me to do surgery to remove it. Either way is fine. Just be a nice guy and everything will turn out okay. No. That doctor knows that the tumor is destroying human life and motivated by the truth will look into the face of the patient and say, my friend, there is a tumor that is eating away at your body. It will end in death, but I can surgically remove it to help prolong your life. I would encourage you with everything in me to allow me to do that surgery. That is virtuous. That is love. That is sincerity with truth. Jesus said the thief comes to steal your life and destroy it. I've come that you may have life and have it to the full. The devil wants to convince you that it doesn't matter what you believe. The devil wants to convince you that all roads lead to heaven. The devil wants to convince you that it doesn't matter, but you might as well do what's right for you because it's right. He authored the idea of humanism. But Jesus said, I am the life. I offer eternal life. Follow me. 
And friends, while that may seem exclusive, it's actually based in truth. Now, what I want to do as I close is I'm going to give you two analogies, and one of them will not be a mushroom analogy, I assure you. The first one is this. Let's say that the president of the United States, regardless of your political view, uh, said, I want to invite you to the White House. And you say, wow, that's a great honor. I would love to go to that, what, the White House, and I would be very honored to go to your house. Thank you so much for that invitation. And he says, listen, I'm going to send you an invitation, a note that's going to tell you how to get in there. I'm going to tell you what road to go down, what door to go to, what secret code to give to the security guard, how to get in right into the Oval Office. Now, how many of you would look at that note and say, that is so exclusive? I mean, I can't believe that he would tell me how to get into the White House. Would anybody of you ever do that? Would you think that at all? Or would you think, wow. This is so great. He invited me to the White House. He gave me the security passcode. I'm able to get right through security. This is great. You wouldn't see it as exclusive. You would see it as invitational. But what if you said, you know what, forget it. That's arrogant. I can't believe he'd tell me how to get there. Instead, I'm going to like leap over the wall and the, in, the, uh, in the yard there, and I'm just going to take off and just see what happens. And I'm going to yell out the passcode as I go, you know, just because I think it'd be the right thing to do. Now, what do you think is going to happen in that scenario? You're getting dropped, all right? Why? Because you're stupid, first of all, and because you shouldn't have done that, and because the president gave you a way to get there, all right? Now, is it exclusive for the president to say that? No, because when he's the president and he knows how to get there, it's not exclusivity, it's invitational. Analogy number one. Analogy number two. Let's say that you are on a ship. And as you are on the ship and you are sailing, you're on a cruise ship. Anybody, anybody in here ever been on a cruise ship? Raise your hand high and proud. I have not. But I've heard that the food is awesome. You can eat as much as you want and, uh, and, that, uh, and that you can watch all these shows. So let's say that you are eating as much as you want and suddenly you are in a different part of the ship and you realize there's a huge hole in the ship and you realize the ship is going down. All right? You know enough to know that. What would you do in that moment? Would you be like, hey, just grab my family, let's get off this ship, this is a problem? Or would you go up to the dining hall and get on the microphone and say, ladies and gentlemen, I want you to know the ship is sinking. And as much as the people on the ship might say, oh, I can't believe you'd say that. Don't you see I'm eating? I'm enjoying a wonderful show here. How could you even say that? That's so arrogant of you to say that. How would you ever say that? No, it's not arrogant to say the ship is sinking. What is it? Loving and true. Because you're just simply telling people the truth of what's happening, and, and you're going to offer and extend to them and say, hey, guys, let's get on the lifeboats. Let's get off the ship. Now, other people may choose a different method. They may choose to stay on the ship. They may choose to eat and say, forget it. I don't care what you believe. You believe what you want to believe. I'll believe what I believe. But you know what I would do? I'd get on the lifeboat. Here's what I'm saying. The, the reality is, the Bible says that, that our world is indeed sinking. And that there is certainly a hole in the hall, and that is a hole called sin, and it has affected all of us. It has affected our world. And, and for Jesus to come and say, I want to extend to you a lifeboat. I want to give you salvation. All you need to do is jump aboard. Is that an exclusive claim? Or is it an invitational claim? Is it an arrogant claim? Or is it a loving claim? I would offer to you, it's not only invitational, it's a word we call grace. Philip Yancey tells about a conversation during a conference on a world, 
on world religions in England a number of years ago. Under discussion was the question of the uniqueness of Christianity, and almost every element had been considered and dismissed until C.S. Lewis, the British theologian and writer, walked into the room. And when he asked what was going on, they said to him that what they thought about Christians' unique contribution to the world, what do you think it is, C.S. Lewis? And he thought for a minute as they were debating. He said, Christianity's unique contribution to the world is one word, and that word is grace. It's different than every other world religion in which you have to fight and work and try to earn your way to heaven. Instead, God came off the mountain. He offered the way to you and said, I want to extend it to you. That is grace. And he said, the notion of God's love coming to us free of charge, no strings attached, seems to go against every instinct of humanity. The Buddhist eightfold path, the Hindu doctrine of karma, the Jewish covenant, the Muslim code of law. Each of these offers a way to earn approval. Only Christianity dares to make God's love unconditional. So friends, don't ever walk out and say, just take a piece of one. Because universalism at its core is not true. You cannot have two opposing ideas that are both true. And when it comes to relativism, you have to admit, there is truth in every aspect of life. And so why is there not truth in the most important aspect of life? And that is God's love for you. And when it comes to God's plan for your life, it's trusted more than any other. I would far rather trust the one who came from the grave and said, because I live, you shall live also. We're going to have a time of prayer. It's a time for you to evaluate and think about your own life before Christ. Because if this is true, it makes all the difference in the world. God, thank you for loving us. Thank you for just our ability to have faith in you. Thank you for the fact that you, in your love and grace, came to among us. Uh, you showed us the way. You said, I'm going to be your tour guide all the way. I'm going I'm to offer you that way to salvation. I am the way. I am the truth. I'm the life. It's not an arrogant claim. It might be an exclusive claim, but it's an invitation to all. And so, God, because of that, we're thankful. Today, we worship you. We come before you. Come before your altar today, God, with open hearts and minds. We come just receiving you. We come, God, with, with the things that we bring, our challenges, our own struggles. And, God, we just say, lay them before you and just say thank you, God. Thank you for your amazing grace. In Jesus' name, amen.